All right, let's jump back. We are in Exodus chapter 12, and we're continuing through this exposition of the book, and we have been seeing the actual Exodus, the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. With that, we have seen, as we've noted, the, the story of Scripture is now going into slow motion. Uh, we've been kind of zipping through the different plagues, but now we're slowing down the Scripture, taking so much time to consider that tenth final plague that has resulted in the deliverance of God's people. It is to be an unforgettable day. And that just posed on my mind a question I just send to you. What is that day for you that is just unforgettable? Uh, you could never forget it. It is a day that you will always remember. You know, maybe it's a, a wedding day. It's a day a child was born. Uh, many times that unforgettable day, it'll be a happy vacation or uh, some great celebration. What's that unforgettable day for you? Two, or conversely, sometimes the most unforgettable days will be days that you wish didn't happen. Maybe days of tragedy. Those are days that you don't easily forget. Case in point, if you were alive and aware of life at the time, I can just ask, where were you on September 11th? And I don't even have to tell you what year we're talking about. And you know what day we're talking about. I was standing in the hot sun uh, on a field trip uh, looking at a famous detailed model of Jerusalem for my college studies. At the time, the model was housed at the Holy Land Hotel right there in Jerusalem. And it was late afternoon, and one of our classmates got an unexpected call from his dad on his satellite phone, okay? And as he's talking with his dad on the phone, he looks rather concerned. So we're thinking, oh man, you know, he's got a family member who's sick, or maybe even a family member's died. And I remember pretty distinctly him pulling the phone away, covering the receiver and saying, America's under attack. It was rather unsettling being in a foreign country, realizing that your homeland is under attack. Of course, we didn't have any idea what was going on. We went back to the uh, hostel we were staying at and just seeing on the very small television in the corner of the lobby, of course, the pictures that we all saw of the planes flying into the, the two towers. And, and you just, you're like, this is a movie. Like, this cannot be real. That's a day I'll never forget. It, it was a day that really changed the way America looked at the world, wasn't it? And I remember it distinctly because as I came off the plane, I came home to a different America from where I'd been. In particular, I remember so distinctly that the main street off the university, and the whole street was lined with American flags. I had just never seen anything quite like it. Never forget. That was the word. We looked at life differently from that point as a country. We looked at our security differently. How secure are we really? Things changed that day. Never forget. And yet, as time passes, right, what do we tend to do? We forget. New concerns rise up. They're, they're more immediate. They seem more pressing, more concerning. And so we move on. We move on like things never, ever even happened in the past. We move on like nothing's changed. And once we do this, of course, what do we do? We leave ourselves vulnerable to not learn from the past. We are susceptible then to the same mistakes and risks because we forget things have changed. And that's not only true 
uh, for the security of our country. But that's a truth just of life, in particular of the Christian life. And that's why in Exodus here, we see so much is given to giving the attention to remember, to always go back and remember. Don't forget, remember. That's why all of these feasts are set up, so you would continually and always remember. We must never forget. But the focus today and what we should always be remembering is Redemption Day. You must never forget the day Christ redeemed you. And to be clear, I don't so much mean the date you came to faith, though that's worth noting, I suppose. But more what we're talking about is the fact that you are redeemed by God and what that means. That's something you must never forget. So in that way, never forget the day God redeemed you. That's a day that forever changed you if you're in Christ. If you've come to Him, that's a day that's made you entirely different. It's changed how you see the past. It's changed how you look at the future. And that way, it's a day always worth talking about is going back to your redemption day. That's what we see play out here. We'll see it with these three truths about redemption, these three pictures about what redemption did. And so this theme this morning, we're talking all about redemption. And we're going to see three pictures here in the Old Testament that, too, testify to what redemption does in Christ. So we'll look at a number of New Testament passages as we go. But in the first place, we need to remember that God's redeeming work brought you into the faith family. What did redemption do? It brings you into the family of faith. It makes you part of the people of God. And we see that with this end of chapter 12 in Exodus. And we uncover this marvelous truth, curiously, perhaps, about what redemption does bringing you into the family of faith. We uncover this by finding out that the Passover meal isn't for everybody. We find out that the feast of the Passover, it's exclusive. It's a restricted, it's restricted. It holds some people out. The Passover meal draws lines about who God's people are. It's defining marks. Not everyone's able to celebrate the Passover. Not everyone's then a part of the people of God. Now, this is interesting because of the curious detail we mentioned as we studied last week when finally Israel gets to get out of Egypt. Do you remember this? It's this curious thing is that as they get out of Egypt, they're not the only ones coming out. Remember that? Look at verse 37 of chapter 12. It reads like this. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. So Ramses in Egypt to Sukkot out of it. About 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Note, verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. So this is interesting. All of the plagues that God was doing against Pharaoh, it wasn't just about Pharaoh, was it? They weren't the only ones. Or he wasn't the only one. The Egyptians were all seeing what God was doing. They were seeing His great power. They were seeing that the Lord is God that he should not be messed with. And they'd felt the brunt of it. And so they, many Egyptians, looking on, seeing the power of God firsthand, they're like, mm, I'm going to side with Yahweh. Let's get out of here. But then that creates this issue. Well, how is Israel supposed to handle all of these uh, tagalongs, these bandwagon believers, right? Were they just automatically made part of Israel, part of God's people because they joined the caravans out of Egypt? Well, evidently not. Because we see in the beginning of verse 3, the Passover meal is actually restricted. 
in verse 43, it's restricted. Not everybody's allowed to partake of it. And you might even suspect some of the Jews were not so eager to receive these former enslavers into the family meal, into the worship of God. That is, they might have had a few grudges. They went through a pretty hard life, so to speak. They're finally getting their deliverance, and now their former enslavers are jumping on the bandwagon. You know, I, I follow a sports team, the Kansas City Chiefs and football. They're, like, kind of good now. Why? Because they got a good quarterback. And I liked them when they were horrible, right? And now we got all these bandwagon fans with 15 Chiefs jerseys on. I'm like, come on. Are you a real fan? You probably like Tom Brady, too, you know? That's not acceptable. Maybe I have some mercy to show. I got something to learn here, too. But I, I doubt the Jews were so eager to receive them as well. And to that, maybe they're glad. Oh, good, God, they're not just coming in with us. And it's interesting, there is a restrictive nature to this Passover sacrifice. It's confined. It wasn't even allowed to leave the Jewish home. Do you see that? In this way, verse 46 The Passover sacrifice wasn't allowed to be broken up and carried out to others. Look at that, verse 46. It, the Passover lamb sacrifice, it shall be eaten in one house. And you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones, as in to break it up and spread it around. It's not to leave the house. In the same way as God passed through Egypt, destroying all of the firstborns, only those that were rescued were those that hid in the house behind the bloody door. Because the death had already happened, so God was passing over. But you could not take, so to speak, the power of that rescue out of the house. It had to stay in the house, in the family. Again, lines are being drawn. Who are God's people and who are not? Such that, you look at verse 47, this Passover, even the remembrance of it, is for all of God's people, but for God's people. Verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. This is a defining mark of who the people of God are. Every year they must remember and reenact this Passover sacrifice. That's what makes you part of the people of God, part of the family of faith. Okay, well, what about this whole mixed multitude thing? All of these other bandwagon believers that have now come on, are they just out of luck? You know, on the outside looking in? No, there's actually something they could do if they wanted to join this feast. And we see it, first of all, there in verse 44. So the end of verse 43, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. That's the exclusion. But, verse 44, every slave that is bought for money may eat of it, but after this condition, you have circumcised him. That's all you got to do. Be circumcised. Or again, in verse 48, note this. If a stranger so sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, this reenactment annually, this, this remembrance, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So that's it. If you want to be part of the people of God, you have to take on the mark of the people of God. If you actually trust in God and in His promises, you're going to take the mark of belief and faith. And what was it in Old Testament Israel? It was circumcision. you got to get circumcised if you want to be part of the people of God. 
Now, why is that? Well, that goes back to Genesis chapter 17. Why is there this focus on circumcision? Well, because God demanded it. Back in Genesis, as he's first giving the promises to Abraham, he first gives them in chapter 12, and then he's reasserting them a few times. And as you get to chapter 17, he makes these great promises to Abraham. And he says, you're going to be a great nation. You're going to be mighty in that way, powerful. You're going to have a land, and I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to be not only God for you, but for all the people of your descendants. But then God says, as a sign, as an indicator of an outward show of that inward faith, you're going to take on circumcision. Such that If you will not take the sign of the promise, it's as if you don't believe the promise and you are then outside the promised people of God. Being circumcised on the outside was a sign on the inside that you believed. So back to Exodus 12. It was only those foreigners who actually believed in God's promises, who had faith, and they had a faith that was so real that they were going to do something about it. They were willing to take onto themselves the sign of faith, which again, this is much like baptism today, isn't it? You come to faith in Christ. You're saved by faith, only what Christ has done. But Jesus commands you to take the sign of faith, that is, baptism. Matthew chapter 28. But being a part or taking the sign of faith, indicating the faith on the inside. Look what it does, back to Exodus 12. So for the foreigner who would take on the promises and take on circumcision, look in the middle of verse 48, what becomes of them. It says again, Then he shall come near and keep it. So on the one hand, you get to partake in the Passover and all that it means and all that it symbolizes in the sacrifice and substitute and so forth. But furthermore, it says, he shall be as a native of the land. This is astonishing. One that was on the outside, totally excluded, a total foreigner, cannot even keep the Passover sacrifice. He is barred from it. But if he takes on faith and its corresponding sign, he becomes a full citizen. It's like he was born in Israel. He's as much a Jew and as much of the promises of God as Abraham was full citizen, all by faith, brought in. Now, what does that have to do with us? So we see a picture of this as well in the book of Ephesians. Why don't you turn over there for a moment? Let's go in our Bibles over to the New Testament and see Paul explore similar pictures here as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, the book of Ephesians, that second chapter. Now, if, you don't, uh, if you're not so familiar with Ephesians 2, okay, this afternoon, you need to go read and pray through this text. It is awesome. It's glorious, okay? We don't have time to get into all the details now. But as the text opens, it deals with our spiritual deadness. That's the starting point. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You lived as a spiritual walking zombie. And for that, you were destined for wrath. You were destined for God's judgment. But instead of being judged in Christ, he loved us. This is where it turns in verse 4. But God, but God being rich in mercy, according to the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's all by mercy. 
As he goes on to say, for by grace you've been saved. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't do it. Christ did it for you. That's a glorious word. But he doesn't leave it there. And that's where we're going to look now is in verse 11 of Ephesians 2. Because it's interesting. Here in verse 11, Paul gives the first command of this whole book. If you don't remember the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are really all about the gospel. And then the last three chapters are how you live out the gospel. So chapters 4, 5, and 6, there's tons of commands. Command, 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 command. But in chapters 1 to 3, there's one command given. Here it is, verse 11. And it's interesting because it's the very command that comes as the main command from our text in Exodus 12 and 13. Well, let's look at it. Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, here's the command, remember. Remember. And what are they to remember? That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, you're the Egyptians. You're without God. And you've seen what God thinks of the Egyptians that stand against God. He's judging them. And that's what we deserve. We're outside God's people. We're outside His blessing. We're being estranged from God. We're outside His promises. And so he tells the church, remember, remember where you started. Alienated from God. At enmity with God. Having nothing to do with God. That's where this all began. But then, verse 13. But now. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, only able to look in, you've been brought near by the very blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. Dear believer, by the death of Jesus, by His blood, you've been brought fully in. That means fully accepted, fully received, fully becoming part of the family such that he can call you fellow citizens. You're no longer, verse 19, no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the very household of God. That happened because of the cross. Full peace, full reconciliation with the God you've turned against. But note this. God doesn't just make peace at the cross between you and Him. He makes peace between you and Him and all of the other sinners He's drawing to Himself. He's made peace there too. He's adopted you into a family of fellow redeemed but believing sinners. He's made peace, yes, between you and God, but He's made peace. He has made peace, accomplished it, between you and all those He's drawing into the church. Now, some of you might think, no way. I've seen the church. I know what the church is like. If He brought peace and unity into the church, it sure doesn't look like it or feel like it to me. Christians are some of the most divisive people I know, you might say. Church splits are everywhere and sometimes over the most trite of things, it's true. Or maybe, and rather painfully. Maybe you know this very personally. 
Perhaps you're at odds with someone and you don't see peace here. Maybe you're at second hour even because the person you're not at peace with, you think is going to be a first hour. And you wonder, I don't see how Christ has made peace at all. Well, evidently, there's a difference of having the basis, the groundwork for peace established, and then actively being able to enjoy that peace and unity and fellowship, isn't there? So, for example, I'm in the process of replacing my dishwasher, and I started working on it yesterday, and between sermon prep and a football game, it didn't get done. But if you stepped in my kitchen right now, it looks great, thanks in large part to my wife who's there, right? But the kitchen looks great, and the dishwasher looks amazing. It's brand new. It's right in place. However, if you wandered into my house and found some of the dishes, maybe in the sink, and you kindly start loading up my dishwasher, you know, you find one of the soap pods, and you put it in there, and you press some buttons, and you close the door, you're going to be disappointed because nothing's going to happen. Why? Because the water's turned off. That's why. I have all the groundwork laid. I've hooked up all the hoses, but it's never going to work because I don't have the water turned on. And in the same way, understand, Christ has laid all the groundwork for peace in His body. He's actually accomplished it. We have it, but in a sense, we got to go turn the water on and let the grace come in. And the really sad thing is, some of us, actually maybe don't even want to go turn the water on to let the grace come in. We'd rather hold on to our grudges. So here's the thing to continue the analogy. If the groundwork for unity and reconciliation has been accomplished at the cross, what do we need to do to enjoy it? What does it mean to turn the water on to let it in? How how do we break down those barriers and those old offenses? Well, with you, where does it start? It starts from the start here. Where does it begin? with the command that Paul gives there in verse 11, and then there again in verse 2. Where does it begin? Remember. you got to remember. you got to remember where you came from. you got to remember what you deserved before God came and pursued you, before He came after you, hounding you down, bringing you to Himself. you got to remember, apart from Christ, you have no hope. Apart from Christ, you were without God in the world. Apart from Christ, you defended Him. Apart from Christ, you were a son destined for destruction. And yet in Christ, you're brought near. You're given mercy. You're given the love and righteousness of Christ. That's a hope that goes beyond the grave. And you got it as a gift. If you remember that, that's going to change the way you can get at reconciliation, won't it? If that's what you remember, when you go to that brother that's against you, well, you can go forward ready to own your wrongs. You can go forward ready to confess your sins. You can do that even when you don't think they're the main reason there's a splice between the two of you. And furthermore, when we remember where we came from, what we deserved, but what we got in Christ, we're then ready to forgive and show mercy too, aren't we? We've been shown so much, how can we not give it to someone else? Ready to put down the grudges, put away the bitterness, bury the division. Why? Because we don't need to vindicate ourselves. The cross did that. And our only vindication is siding with Christ. 
So have you received others in the church like Christ has received you? Pursued you, comforted you, showed mercy to you? Do you show tolerance to those Christians that have different convictions than yours? Especially in the body, but also outside. Can people look in at the way you live and see peace, brotherhood, unity, standing at the cross? Or are they more likely to see one who's easily offended and judging others? Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget God's redemption. He made peace. Let's cultivate it. He's brought you into the family of faith. And it only works as we remember His grace. The redeeming grace of God. The redeeming grace of God that also set you free from slavery. Remember what redemption did, and now we turn as we turn the page to Exodus chapter 13. We see the fruits of it in that He set us free from slavery. In particular for us, though also true for Israel, He's setting us free from slavery, from sin, most of all. And we see this pictured again for us as we return once again to the memorial feast of Israel's history with this Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've already talked about it, but apparently it's easy to forget because it gives us a whole other part of the chapter to talk about it. But that's kind of the theme of this this morning. These first 10 verses are all about this feast that we've considered some in detail. And so we'll explore it a little more, again, so we can remember, but this time, interestingly, it begins a bit differently. It begins with this word about firstborns. So look at that. Look at the beginning of chapter 13. Here's verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, note this, is mine. He claims it. He says they're his. The firstborns, whether man or beast, particularly belong to him. And so that means they were dedicated to God, sanctified consecrated for God's use. The word in the Hebrew is the word we know from to make holy. He lays his claim on them, and so they should be set apart to serve him. Now, why are the firstborn sons singled out here? Well, can you guess? I mean, based on what we've seen through all of the plagues, started in Exodus chapter 4, when God called Israel's firstborn son, so he was going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son, and then the tenth culminating plague that struck Egypt was all about the death of the firstborn son and not the death of Israel's firstborn sons. Why? Because they were hiding behind the blood of the lamb. Again, the whole context draws this out, but then the Lord makes it so clear. This is a later reference. This is in the book of Numbers, but he draws the connection directly. This is Numbers chapter 3, verse 13. You can just listen, take a note, and you can read it more later. But he says this, this is Numbers chapter 3, verse 13. On the day, God says, I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. On that day, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. So here, you have expressly, he's saying the firstborn are mine. They're consecrated, set apart for holy use. Why? He makes it so clear, because I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt and spared Israel. That's why they're mine. This is a picture, God showing us what redemption means, what its significance is. 
And here's a part of it. It's multifaceted. Here's one. Redemption is paying a price, sometimes called a ransom, paying a price to buy something back for yourself so you can use it. That's what redemption is. We use that term still. We talk about, you know, maybe you're really hard for cash, and so, you know, you send something to a pawn shop or whatever, maybe put it on eBay, maybe that's what we do now, and then you're going to go redeem it. You're going to buy it back. We still do that now, but here it is pictured, God does that with His people. He buys them, sets them free so He can use them. That's what He's done with the firstborns. But that's not all that redemption means, because redemption also, in particular, it would be used about paying a ransom to buy someone out of slavery, to buy them out of servitude. In other words, redemption in that way can be a synonym for being let go, liberated, set free. And that's the truth that this redemption feast of unleavened bread calls to mind. Israel, you're set free. You're set free from Egypt. And as we've explored, that means also set free from sin. Note this, as we look now to verse 3, and this call to remember. Exodus 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day. So here is the governing command, really for the whole rest of this part of the chapter. Remember this day. Don't forget it. Call it to mind. Remember this day when, in which you came out from Egypt, But what is that a picture of? You came out of the house of slavery. You're free. You got out. Now note, end of verse 3, how did they get out? For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. Israel, never forget this day that I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. Never forget this day. I use my strong hand to get you out of slavery and servitude. Never forget my strong hand has said you're no longer a slave. And God's going to make sure they never forget because He's going to give them this feast. He's going to put this annual reminder on their calendar, this, this holiday, really a holiday week of remembrance marked by this Tasty unleavened bread. And we've talked about some of the pictures of what unleavened bread means in the recent past. Remember, we recounted how in the Passover remembrance, the children were sent all throughout the house to find even the smallest crumbs of a cracker or bread that was leavened to drive it out. In the same way, Israel was to be driving out sin and disobedience to God, just as we are to be. But it's something they will always remember, every year at least. And such that, we look to verse 8, they were to tell their children about it, something they would never forget for the next generation. And then at the end of verse 9, what must they never forget? Again, the repeated phrase, by a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt, as in brought you out of slavery. You're not slaves anymore. You can never forget this, and not just for you, but also for the next generation. And so, fathers, just a brief aside here, it is your responsibility to tell this to your children. Verse 8, look at it there. You shall tell your son on that day, when you're observing the unleavened feast, 
You're going to go tell him. You're going to find him and tell him, on this day, what are we doing? We're doing it because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So fathers, make sure your children know this testimony of yours. Make sure your children know Jesus is alive and he changed his heart because he changed my daddy's, revolutionized him. Make sure your children know the story about how he saved you and changed you and brought you to faith. But know this, you are to go tell. This is not a suggestion. You shall tell your son. And you're not just going to wait for him to come ask you about it. Live like a redeemed man, especially to recount the testimony of God's grace to you. Tell that to your kids. All right, that was probably more for me as a dad. But take what you will. Let's keep looking. God was not merely setting them free from hard labor, though, you understand. And we've seen this. He was setting them free from sin. Again, we talked about how the children were looking for the leaven and they would drive it out. And again, Paul uses that same expression to talk about driving out the old leaven. Here's what he tells the church now in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. We looked at it last time, but hear it again. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. But he says, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Why? Because you're redeemed. Why? Because you're set free. You've been redeemed to be set free from slavery to sin, so drive it out of you. That's what you need to remember about your redemption day. You've been changed. But you've been changed not to then be free to yourself, to indulge yourself. You're free not to be your own master, but to be mastered by the master. And that's picked up so well in the book of Romans, chapter 6. Where Paul picks up on these themes to show you're set free from sin to be mastered by the king. He puts it this way to pick up on this illustration of slavery. And he says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 22. He says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. So you are set free. Sin no longer is your master. It no longer has dominion over you. It's not your Lord such that you are free to stop serving sin so you can freely start serving God. That's the picture of redemption. As it comes full circle then with what we've said about the firstborns, right? Redemption means you've been bought, and that means you've been set free, bought from out of slavery, so then you can serve God freely. That was not possible prior to Christ's intervention and redemption in your heart. But because he has intervened, everything has changed. Such that, as Paul talks about here in Romans 6, you are no longer enslaved to your sinful lusts. You are not. You've been changed. Now, we know it doesn't always feel like that, does it? I mean, the temptations are pretty strong at times, aren't they? But that's where you have to go back and remember, right? You need to remember that despite what you might feel, you have been set free because Christ died for you. That's the truth. As true as Jesus' resurrected life is in heaven right now is as true as all those in Christ are set free from sin. 
But you got to win the battle of remembrance. You got to win the battle of the mind and of the heart. You got to think differently about yourself and about your past. You need to think differently about what it means you're redeemed. Because so often, isn't it, in the face of whatever sins and temptations, what's the first thing we remember? We remember our past feelings. So we just give up, we give in, and we're like, ah, that's who I am, right? That's my besetting sin. That's just the way I am. I just never can quite change. Or we'll say things like, that's just my personality. You know, I'm a worrier. I'm a luster. I'm short-tempered. And why do we resign with thoughts like that? Well, on the one hand, as we noted, it's because we failed him so many times before. We've let our past, our past failings define us when Christ is saying something else about your past now defines you. Because that's it. Why else do we say these things? Just my personality. I'm a worrier. That's who I am. Why else do we think like that? Because we've forgotten our redemption day. That's why. We've forgotten that Christ has actually died and set us free from sin's power. That you are no longer bound to obey its lust. You had no choice before, in effect. That's what he talks about in Romans chapter 8. You just obeyed your lust. You sinned. That's what you did. It just came out of your heart reflexively. Well, it's not the case anymore because Christ redeemed you. And that's why Paul talks like this in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. He calls the believers to fight this old way by thinking. He says this, Romans 6, verse 11. So, believer, you must also consider. That's a thought word. That's a remembering word. That's a think about word. You need to think about yourselves, he says, as dead to sin. Why? Because it's wishful thinking? No, but because of the cross, you actually are. Are you actively remembering that truth and walking in it? Are you living as a free, redeemed man? Or are you more like a free man who's returning to his old cruel master, putting your shackles back on yourself? Well, the question is, what are you thinking about more? Are you thinking about the old you, the default you, or the Christ-redeemed you? Because understand, if you're not actively remembering, taking this as a command to govern you, you will fall back into your old, and we know, sinful habits. Have you ever done this? Like, we moved houses in town, you know, a few years ago, and I would find myself just driving around here in like Midlothian and Chesterfield, and I would be so caught up in something on my mind. I was just thinking about it such that I thought I was driving home. I was taking old roads, old routes, but I was heading to then my old house. Just reflexively, the house that wasn't mine anymore, that if I walked into it, if it was unlocked, I might get arrested. Some other things were so dominating my mind, I just reflexively fell to old habits. Well, it's so easy to do that with sin, isn't it? But we must not. We must always remember you've been changed, you've been redeemed, you've been set free from sin, and he's telling us, never forget. Finally then, its redeeming work also has done what? It's purchased you for God. And that's what we see following up in this last paragraph of our study, verses 11 to 16 from Exodus 13. And we see it in this picture of this regular remembrance, it's called the redemption of the firstborn son. 
And he's then giving his people commands that's looking ahead. They're going to get to the promised land, and still this will be something they must always remember. Looks at Exodus 13, verse 11. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the firstborn that opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. So we've kind of seen this, right? He's already laid claim to this. But get this, what he's saying. That was not only true for that congregation that came out of Egypt that night, you see. They need to remember this and reenact this such that every firstborn in Israel afterward is God's. And to teach them about that, he's going to teach them more about redemption. And that's true for the animals. And we get some real insight into what redemption is all about. Look at verse 13 now. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Ooh. Whoa, sounds kind of dark, kind of hard on a baby donkey, don't you think? What's going on? Well, a donkey would be an unclean animal. You were not permitted to sacrifice and bleed the donkey out on the altar. So you had an option. The donkey has to die, apparently, and it, it can either die, which means you break its neck, or you can have a lamb come take its place. It needs a substitute, right? So you, as the owner of the donkey, you can either redeem it, by giving a lamb in its place, or you can break the donkey's neck. Either way, the don- either, either way, the donkey is supposed to die. And again, it's interesting, because then he talks about firstborn sons in kind of the same way. Look at verse 13 at the end. Every firstborn of man of your sons you shall redeem. Now, of course, you're not going to break its neck. God wouldn't permit that. But you see, firstborn sons, too, they were unclean. They were supposed to die, too. And the only reason they got out of Egypt the first time is because they were covered by blood. And the only way they'll get out from the judgment this time is because the blood takes its place. This is redemption. Actually, that word that's used here in the Hebrew for redeemed so often describes one who's rescued from death. But the only way you're going to be rescued is if someone dies for you. Look at verse 14. Because then the father has to explain this all to his son. And it says, when in, time you come, when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, here's what it means. This is why we do this. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And then the dad has to go on and continue. Because it's not merely from slavery, but it's a rescue from death. Look at this, verse 15. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, here's why, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened to the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And how does he redeem? But by the death of another. This is how God saves. He saves by a substitute. We don't have time to look at it, but in Romans chapter 3 is this glorious picture how Christ is our Redeemer. Why? Because He is our propitiation. We had sinned, we were to be judged, but He comes and takes our place, takes our sin, and satisfies the wrath of God. We have a death of another. 
We were redeemed by the blood of a firstborn, Jesus Christ, that we might be his firstborn. And so back here at Exodus 13, that's something we can never forget. We must always remember how he did it and what it means. And it's pictured by this expression that concludes us here in verse 16. It says this. So as he tells this to Israel, he says, It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. What are they to remember? By a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. Despite what the Jews went on to do, they put things in the front of their heads and they wrapped stuff around their hands. It's not, that's not the point. The picture here is that whatever you set your hand to do, whatever you reach out to handle, whatever passes through your mind, it's always seen to the grid that God has redeemed you in Christ. Your whole life is governed by this. God is your Redeemer. So is that what is always on the tip of your tongue, so to speak, the forefront of your mind, as you think through life, that God is your Redeemer? Well, what does it look like when you've forgotten your redemption? In summary, it looks like this. When you forget your redemption, what does it look like? You're still holding on to your sin. You're still holding on to your sin. And that has two aspects. On the one, we've kind of already talked about it. You still hold on to sin's pleasures. You live under your old master. But also, it can look like this. You still hold on to the guilt of your sin that your Redeemer already dealt with. I mean, do you know this? You feel horrible for not honoring God as you should. You have this nagging guilt that you've failed Him because you know you have. And so you have this fear that maybe He doesn't really accept me or accept me fully. And so you're regularly discouraged, regularly depressed. You're, you're anxious. Something's about to go wrong. I know God would be right to come get me. And so this kind of guilt just sticks with you. It weighs you down, doesn't it? And it just zaps all the power out of your life. It's like you're somehow walking through life, but you're carrying these suitcases filled with cement, going nowhere fast. You limp along, but you are weighed down, spiritually exhausted. Why is this? Well, could it be that you have forgotten your redemption, that Christ has redeemed you? That Christ paid for those sins that you feel so weighed down by. And in a way, it's like Christ is coming up to tell you as you're holding these bags. And he says, hey, I already redeemed you. I already bore those for you. I already paid them all. Put, paid it all. Put those bags down. You don't need to carry that anymore. I carried it for you to the cross. And here's maybe the biggest truth about redemption to that. And how we can still remember and hold on to it. It's that he did the work, not us. You can't improve upon it. You can't make it better. It was his work. Again, back to verse 16. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. What must they remember? And it's repeated throughout this text just like this. What are they to remember? By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And understand, it's not talking about your strong hand. It's talking about the strong hand of our Redeemer. He paid it all. Don't improve upon it. You can't redeem yourself more by adding to it. Rather, what does He call you to do? Remember it. And then live like it that his hand is that strong. 
but that means we must never forget. So let's pray. Ask him for his help in that.